welcome to the Situation Report for, wow, it's already April 19th. This is Lieutenant Colonel Morgan. I'm joined by Alex Craner. Alex, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it, and I appreciate the time. So we're um, we're going to start with just your view of the world, but the high level, how you see things right now and, and where you see things going. A great pleasure to uh, join you, Stephen, and uh, in... In a word, we are in a total war, and the war is on us. I think primarily on the American people, but uh, generally on on the populations of the collective West. We see uh, the Biden administration relentlessly ramping up tensions with China, relentlessly and needlessly. Uh, And it's really puzzling why they should be doing that since you know, they don't have a way to defeat China militarily, even if they manage to um, herd together the Pacific cats, you know, the Japan and Singapore and Australia and all yeah. these nations. Logistically, we can't do it. That That's a true statement. It can't be done, it can't yeah. be done logistically. It can be done, you know, Pentagon, maybe you know more about this, but Pentagon apparently has run numerous simulation of a clash between United States and China in the Pacific. And they came out with the conclusion that there's no way that they're going to be winning, that the, the Navy would, you know, the, the the carrier strike groups would be sunk in a, in a relatively short time. So why on earth would they be provoking this war at all? And to me, the only answer that is possible is because the war in China is not the actual important war that they plan to wage. The war they plan to wage is on the American people. And what the war against China would give them, it would give them a massive emergency and a smokescreen uh, to not only explain away all the failings of the system and all the crises that are just metastasizing on all fronts, they would also have uh the leeway to deal quick and dirty with any opposition and any dissent at home yeah, and introduce all sorts of other emergency measures. You know, we've, we've lived uh, in the last three years through some extraordinary experiences and we know what governments can do when they declare an emergency and when that emergency is credible. So, you know, I can you can use your imagination what they could do if there was a massive new war on the Pacific and, you know, suddenly you couldn't get an appointment with your doctor, your pension wasn't clearing, uh, there's no food on the shelves in the supermarkets uh, and so forth. It would all be like, well, you know, we're at war, uh, suck it up and be patriotic, don't criticize anybody. Well, I think they're going to try that. I think... Um... There's two parts to that, which I don't I don't disagree with any of that. The piece that that I look at is we're importing about a thousand Chinese fighting age males daily into the country. They're being bussed from all points in South America up to Mexico. They're being flown to, to Venezuela, into Peru and other places, and then they're being bussed up to the border and dropped off. And then they're being moved by DHS once they come in the country. So I think your supposition's right, but I also think that China's involved in this as much as the U.S. leadership is involved in this. Because remember, we have a controlled asset in the White House. We have controlled yeah. assets in the Senate. We have controlled assets in the media that are all owned by China. Murdoch was married to a spy for how many years? I mean, you can go down by the numbers and see how yeah. it's the perfect storm. And I think unlike COVID now, there's too many people awake that see what's going on and they're armed, right? And and you mentioned yeah. in one of your conversations with Tom that we're literally the last bastion of armed citizens on the planet that are that will stem the tide. And I, I think you're going to see that. In fact, all of the indications that I see says this is going to go kinetic this year, probably this summer. How it goes, when it starts, I don't know. From a mil- military perspective, I see the Chinese being used against critical infrastructure and disruption operations for supply chain logistics, et cetera, 
And then you can't discount the cartels and what their role is going to be in this because the cartels are a proxy for China, as well as for the CIA, as well as for the government. So you're going to see disruption ops against probably the first responders in all the major urban areas. I mean, they're doing aerial surveys right now of every major city in the country. That should tell you everything you need to know about what they're planning yeah. for. So they're planning for some kind of kinetic operations. And I th I don't know if you have this sense too, but the sense I have is that their timeline is getting pushed all over the place and they're being yeah. rushed to do things. They're being slowed yes. down in other places. I mean, what's your thoughts on that? Because I know you've talked about it before. So I think that the, the massive problem that they face is the, uh, the problem of, uh loyalty so uh if you if you're gonna okay so they're cre they're creating an all-out crisis in the united states on all fronts that they can you know the the, the, the racial tensions the uh, you know the the antifa the the class tensions the the gender dysphoria uh, everything right mm -hmm. and it's those, you, that's called concurrent information and influencing operations is what that is and they're yeah. doing it they're and, doing it across and, the spectrum and, yeah exactly and so what what would be the point of that and i think that the point of that you already know this but the point of that is like when you when you watch uh news reports from the streets of the united states where you you know like san francisco baltimore and so forth what do people say? They ask them like, so what's the solution to this problem? Because they've lost completely lost faith in their in their public, you know, politicians. They say the military has to take over. So like military on the streets, that's the only way we're gonna get out of this. So clearly they're already uh creating um, you know, they're engineering consent for this. But the problem is, what if you unleash the military? And then the guy in charge is some Smedley Butler. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is exactly. why you need to bring all these immigrants from wherever you can scrape them up. You want foreigners patrolling your street. I don't think, you know, I think the original plan is to have UN troops, but I don't think that's ready. So they're, they're vacuuming up foreigners from wherever they can find them from Ukraine, from South America, from China, from wherever they can bring them in from, uh, because then they, uh, let's say, they at least protect themselves from, let's say, a patriotic American finding himself in charge and not willing to shoot at his own citizens. Yeah. Um, now, China, I think that's a that's a that's a big problem because uh, I've I've looked very closely at what China is doing, and I don't think I think it's a mistake to look at the China as a monolith. I am certain that China has a segment of the Western power in their crosshairs and Russia as well. But I think they're after the oligarchy, okay? And to get to the oligarchy, they really have to be close to the seat of power. So they've been infiltrating the academia, the cultural institutions, the military, the um, uh, the political parties, particularly the Democrats. You know, they have all the receipts for Biden corruption. They have receipts, not just, you know, yeah this laptop or that they have receipts they know yep yeah they've and done the, the due diligence actually say we know exactly who the enemy is and i think that they're coming after the enemy they're not coming at the american people they're coming after the oligarchy and that's why the oligarchy is absolutely panicked and by this all-out attack at the populations of the united states and uh collective west what they want to do is they want to carve off a block and and break you know like like during the the Cold War, an Iron Curtain. Only this time, you'd be finding yourself on the wrong side. That's a that's an interesting perspective because, um, so I've had this discussion around, and I've said this, I've literally said this for two years now to my audience that the only way they could occupy the country is well, first of all, it would take ten million troops. I don't think they have that number here on the ground. I think they have a couple of million that they've infiltrated in. But I look at what it took to hold Iraq. And what Iraq is the size of Texas. That was 250,000 boots on the ground just to keep some semblance of order, but we didn't really own anything. We couldn't cover yeah. down on all of the 
the key infrastructure and weapons depots. Like the place was an armed camp. He had uh, Hussein had weapons buried everywhere. He had ammo supply dumps the size of a Walmart that were stuffed floor to ceiling, and we couldn't cover down on it with two hundred fifty thousand people. And that was one hundred ten thousand military soldiers, and then one hundred twenty five hundred thirty thousand contractors that were former military and civilians. And that's how I see this playing out. I see them hiring contractors that are all foreigners that are given specific yep. areas of responsibility inside of big urban areas. And their whole job is to brutally shut down any kind of dissent. All that's going to do is do exactly what it did in Iraq, which is create more militants, more insurgents. And the one thing that I don't think they've war gamed out is what happens when you piss off a bunch of Marines that are combat veterans that are civilians now and they go insurgent because once they go insurgent it's it's game over and i think that's we're about to see that play out but that's one scenario right another scenario is they lower the recruiting standards they put all these people in uniform they train them and they push them through the system i don't see that happening because what we talked about that- earlier logistic yeah there'll right? be an optimistic there'll be an optimistic scenario for them yeah. And and the other the other side of that is we don't have the force structure right now on the ground because we've got two divisions that are in Ukraine, probably in Ukraine right now, not in Poland. And when that goes hot, not if it's when that goes hot, that the whole game's going to be changed. And I don't think these dipshits in Washington figure out that logistically we're screwed. We we can't fight um two different wars and conflicts in the same place. And more importantly, we can't replenish the stuff we've sent over there. We've sent over all of our military surplus stock that was sitting in strategic reserve, like all these one one sorry, all these M one one three personnel carriers are seeing blown up by the Russians and stolen. Yeah, yeah, all that came out of our strategic reserve. We have nothing left, and we can't rebuild that stuff even on our best day in less than eighteen to twenty four months. So we're screwed. And then. You talked about carrier battle groups. Here's the military side of the carrier battle groups. We spent 30 years building integrated air defense systems and close-in air defense systems for missiles. Their hypersonic missiles rendered every bit of that obsolete overnight. And then there's the drones, the drones which we can't deal with in mass, and they can swarm drones. The Chinese have drone carriers. Imagine 60,000 drones going after carrier battle group. You don't have enough bullets. You don't even you don't even yeah. have enough time. So there's a lot of scenarios you can play there. And I think that you're spot on. But I, I think the bigger question is, is what's going to happen to Europe while all this is going on over here? Because there's the, the there's the odd man out, right? Look, the uh the ugly scenario is something that has been emerging repeatedly through history repeatedly you know this is this is not normally what they teach you in school but almost always you get a reign of terror you know you mentioned it that they're going to go deal with the with any kind of opposition and or insurgency in a brutal way well that's that's exactly what they do and they've done it you know the under under the dutch empire in the 1600s the british empire you know the british have done it against you know um, everybody form of opposition <laughs> Yeah, it always happens, you know. Colombia, Mexico, um, uh, Ukraine after 2014 coup, you have death squads going around and eliminating um, opposition, and not only eliminating opposition, but making it in a way that inspires fear in the population. You know, they 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 very often uh, do very gruesome assassinations and then publicize them. That everybody sees or you know in the older days they would just like leave heads on spikes as you enter the city before you enter the city there would be like heads of like this is what happens to people who oppose us so that's the that is the ugly scenario i think that quite honestly with the in the united states what might happen is very difficult to say because you have a very strong patriotic foundation of of you know deplorable people who are refusing to give up their guns. 
I love that term, by the way, because that's totally me. <laughs> yeah, just so you know, I'm, I'm going to fight. I'm just telling you right now, I'm going to fight. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think that where you're circling around, which is I totally agree with, by the way, I love that term deplorable. Never gets old hearing that shit. Um, <laughs> the, the thing that I, and I deal with this a lot, is I'm a commissioned officer. My oath never expires. I have an indefinite commission in the United States Army, and I will... How do I say this? I, I will, I don't care if I'm 80 on a walker like Yoda running. I'm still going to fight. And most Americans that have served will tell you the exact same thing. And we're yeah. not talking about, you know, a million or 2 million people. We're talking 30 million veterans in this country that are angry. We know what's going on and we're ready to fight. And, you know, I talk to to folks all the time and I hear the same thing. Can we just get on with it? Let's just let's stop the pretending. Let's stop the game. Let's just get on with it and get to the kinetic so we can throw these guys out and start over. That's literally how most of the population feels. And there's 150 million Americans that feel that way. So I don't think they've war gamed this so, out. I, yeah. I, I, I think that I think that the United States is going to turn out to be the the nut that's gonna be impossible for them to crack for exactly that reason. Because you know, like in Europe, we have generally centralized governments, all the populations are disarmed. And if things get ugly, you know, what do Europeans do? They emigrate, you know, they they hunker down, they emigrate, they they wait for the winds to blow over. The the French usually resist, but that's about it. You don't I think, think the Germans the will? Is, sorry? You don't think the Germans will? Because I think the Germans will too. I, I hope that you're right, but I don't see it yet. Uh, uh, I mean... Well, they're not starving yet. That, Right, we're still comfortable. They're not. And they're, they're not, not comfortable. Yet, and they're yeah. still uh, very much have never sobered up from the from the war guilt that has been uh, falsely uh, imposed on them. You know, because Germans didn't start World War One, and Germans didn't start World War Two. I mean, okay, World War Two they did start it, but you know, they were they started it in the same way as Zelensky started the war in Ukraine, or you know, created the conditions. Yeah, set conditions so that the there war was, would occur. Exactly. There yeah. was a very, very busy footwork by the British intelligence and by British secret diplomacy to make sure that the conditions for the eruption of World War II were created, and they created it. And, you know, Adolf Hitler was uh, Vladimir Zelensky. That's how that's it went a, down. That's a great way to look at that. You know, I've been trying to figure out how to compare Zelensky to somebody else because he's such a stooge. I mean, he's not in charge of anything. That All the yeah. European leaders make their trip over there to pay homage to the great leader, but he's really just a stooge and he's been he's he's getting orders from the elite. So yeah. I want to circle back to something, though, because I, I don't want to get away from it. And that is, you think China's going after the oligarchs. Can you give us a little more? Can you give me a little more context what that looks like? Because I yes. I have mixed feelings. Right, yeah. my my view of China and total war is they always use proxies. They want to destroy America. They have enough people to literally kill everybody off here and just fall in and occupy this country in total without breaking a sweat in their population, and having six hundred million people left in their own country that they can go and emigrate to Europe and occupy Europe as well. So there's there's a couple of schools of thought. My school of thought is China's making a lot of these things happen so that regionally they can influence Taiwan, they can influence Japan, they can influence Korea, but I don't think they have any desire to yeah, um invade the US. It's just too much of a uh too much of a logistical challenge for them. But I definitely see them doing disruption and interdiction. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, so I've, I've, you know, I've been, I've been of two, I've been like, like that of two minds on China, and I couldn't really work out what the hell they were doing. Um, eventually, I came back to the, to, to, you know, by, by reading and listening to what the Chinese leadership was saying. Okay, they don't have. First of all, culturally, they don't have the 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 mentality of conquest of territory you know so the you know the idea that somebody is mad enough to think that they can conquer the united states kill all the americans and take over 
I think that that is so um, unlikely that I wouldn't really even, um, I let's say I would be relaxed about that part. Uh, now, the Chinese, uh, if you listen carefully to what they say, is they are very conscious of their history, particularly about what they call their century of humiliation, okay? They know exactly who afforded them that century of humiliation. Um, the Chinese were intended to be the empire's next host because, you know, the first of all, I it is a mistake to look at the United States as the empire because, you know, like everybody in the world says like the American empire, the American empire. It's not really the American empire. The empires are, uh, you know, when you... When you study history, we tend to conflate nations and empires. You know, the Spanish Empire, the British Empire, the Dutch Empire, and so forth. The empires are always uh, relatively small networks of vested interests that co-opt a nation's um, financial, economic, diplomatic, and military structures in order for them to um, to achieve their objectives. And so when the British Empire began to die at the turn of the last century, they simply shifted headquarters to the United States because they, here they had like a, a healthy, vibrant giant with a strong military, with a bursting economy, with, uh, with military industry and all this. So the Brits, Deliberately, because they spent years in their in their you know uh, royal society for, I forget what it's called. It's the pres president of the Chatham House. Uh, they they spent years intellectualizing what to do, how to preserve the empire, and their solution was we go to the United States, and they started creating these pilgrim clubs, where they would attract the the most the wealthiest and most powerful uh, members of the of the community. And they started infiltrating the American uh, structures of, of power. And they turned the United States into their empire. Uh, that is, into their, um, how do you call it? Um, proxy. Proxy. Yeah. But they knew, because this always happens with a 100% track record, is that the empires always deplete and exhaust their host. So before the host dies, they have to have the new host. And they decided it was going to be China. So in 1971, when Richard Nixon broke the uh, the dollar convertibility into gold, they knew that they were going to destroy the dollar and that they needed to plan the new host. So Kissinger and Nixon went to China in 1972, and they started opening China, right? And then they started building up China, transferring all the manufacturing over there. And when you look at how that was done, you realize that, you know, China was accepted into the World Trade Organization. And then when China started breaking uh, the rules of the World, World Trade Organization, uh, all these oligarchs would just look away because that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to build up China and deplete the United States and then, you know, use China as their next global cop. Okay, so my big doubt was, is China doing this willingly? Are they really volunteering to be the global cup for the empire or did they draw them in in order to behead them? And I finally, by, by, you know, by listening to what is being internally said in China by, you know, you know, when Xi Jinping speaks to, to students or to his military at graduations or, you know, whatever, he often almost always mentions the century of humiliation. They know where it comes from. So they're not volunteering to become the next disposable tool of the same structure of power that caused them the century of humiliation. Yeah. That so is a I, very interesting theory. Very interesting. Yeah. I, so, you know, the, the, the way I, I look at China now is I, I look at them as undercover cop, you know, they're in and they're in deep, but I, I think there's no way that they are in bed with these oligarchs with the, you know, the Davos crowd that they drew them in because, okay, I'll give you another data point. If you look at what uh, what George Soros was saying about China 10 years ago, yep. 
I was just going to say that. So, <laughs> and what he's saying about China now, because before it was like all oh, China, China, China. Their model yeah. is the best. They have to own the globalization process and carry it on and so forth. And now yeah. he's like, oh, China, bad, no, no good on human rights. We have to go and kill China. Well, I, I, what that's so, man. You know, how you have those moments where you have so many things you want to say all at one moment. You can't pick the first one to start with because you just like <laughs> totally geeked me out there. All right, what? Let's let's start with the uh, the the undercover cop thing because I think it, that's an interesting scenario. See, I I look at it a little more pragmatically, right? Because I see Xi is a Shanghai mafia guy. He's a he's a gangster. He's he's a gangster through and through. This guy's a hardcore killer. He's not a politician. He's not polished. He's a killer, and killers think a very specific way. And if you if you look at any of the, um, let's just say special forces community, you look at any of those guys, every single one of them is very laid back. They're very casual people. They don't get upset about anything. And it's because they're hardcore killers, right? They've been trained to disassociate feelings, emotions, everything. And I see G the same way. So it's that that makes it plausible that your premise is probably pretty close, if not spot on, that he's slowly but patiently drawing them in so he can chop the head off. Because I, I know that he wants he wants the Swiss um, banking system and the city of London banking system to die a loud death, but he doesn't want to be the reserve currency. He doesn't want the responsibility. He wants the ability to manipulate and to influence like London does with LIBOR, but he doesn't want to own it. At least that's the way I see it, right? So that gives him a lot more options to do things regionally, to do things um, against one of his arch enemies, which is Japan. The Chinese hate the Japanese because of what they did to the Chinese people in World War II. That memory has never gone away. And I know that G has mentioned several times about the genetic experiments the Japanese did on the Chinese and the Koreans, by the way, during World War II. And I know he wants payback for that. So I I think there's two sides to this, right? So side one is let's just let's just play devil's advocate for a second um, and say that that's the case. And then what does that do? How does that play out in Europe? Because I think Europe is going to collapse. It's just a matter of when. And how? And it's going to be currency that collapse yeah. first, and then society, right? Because logistically, the supply chain's screwed. Same here. Yeah, they've been destroying yeah. rail yeah. systems here for the last five months now, and people are like, "Oh, everything's fine." I'm like, "You you don't realize it. It, it it's going to catch up all in one moment, and then things are going to stop. And when they stop, is when the gunfire starts. And it's going to be locally first until people figure out who's really responsible for this, and then you're going to see a lot of really Rich people disappear or get smoked right in the middle of the street because there's got there's not going to be any place to hide. So anyway, I I know I'm going somewhat tangential, but let's start with Europe. Where do you how do you see things playing out in Europe? Because you're in Monaco, right? You're you're in you're in the heart of it. Uh, I'm in Monaco, and uh, you know I don't I don't feel in in great danger here, and I think that Europe has something uh, that allows it to be. Uh, a little bit more resilient in the local in the local communities at least and that is that you know food food production and food distribution is not um exclusive to large um supermarket chains so you know like i i know I, i've lived in the united states many years and i know that some places in the united states are absolute food deserts if the walmart shuts down People have no idea where they would be getting their food. You know, there's golf courses, but you can't eat that grass, right? Like, ooh. so it's a it's a it's a big problem, and the commute times are bigger. And you know, you have these you have these sprawling neighborhoods where people have, you know, uh, 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 nice manicured lawns, but no no food. Whereas in Europe, you <laughs> still all, have that's all of Arizona. <laughs> that's where I live. That's California as well. Pools. You know, oh, yeah, and, California. Yeah. And There's no gardens. I, I, think, I think, you know, like, I think that a necessity will probably start to change that, but there might be a transition period where it's going to get ugly. Whereas in Europe, you have a lot of people who 
have a piece of garden where they're growing something. You know, like I in Croatia, we regularly get stuff from our neighbors. You know, because they have they have salad, they have uh, you know cherries, they have potatoes, and you always get like a big giant bag as a gift. You know, like there's there's still that gift economy, which is another thing they never taught us in school, which is alive and well. You know, my dad used to go off fishing. If if he came back with a lot of fish, obviously you can't eat it all. So what you do is you like put it in little bags and you give it to everybody. And then somebody else, when they get, you know, whatever, they give it to everybody. So there's this resilience in the community that can that you can you can fall back on and have a you know have it break your fall. I'm this is this is something that gives me a little bit of reassurance that at least maybe uh, it's not going to get really, really ugly really fast. And if the government stay out of the way, the the society will bounce back. But, you know, we have to look at the historical record again. And we know from the historical record that uh, when, when the banking institutions fail, things get really, really ugly. And, you know, when you... If you study the history of the of the Middle Ages, there's all these wars, a hundred year war and, and and this war and that war, and then the plague and then the famine and then another famine and then more plagues and so on. It's all it all tends to happen after you had um, a chain reaction failure of banking institutions. So if you study the Lombard banking system, which took off in the 1400s in in Italy, but it spread all over Europe. When the when the Lombard banking system failed, that's when you had these um, wars started to erupt, just war after war after war. You also had famines. You also had plagues because you know when you have famine, people are malnourished, their immune systems collapse, uh, money is not being used to keep the social services going, you know, take away the trash and make sure there's no rats and cats and so on. And so all of that collapses. And then you have also, uh, you know, the the city slums become uh, disease uh, petri dishes. And so this is, this is actually what kind of worries me. If we're going to know to um, keep those systems operating because they're important. I can already tell you that, for example, in Croatia, I used to live in Croatia where I, while it was under under communism, yeah, and so you know, uh, life was okay. Life life was actually very good. Uh, one of the things, trash was being taken away every day. Yeah, in 1991, we became independent, and then we completely turned westward. We copy pasted practically all the system from the west into into our. Uh, the way our government is run now, uh, trash collection got privatized. Yeah. So, you know, uh, collecting trash every day is an expense. And a yep. private enterprise wants to be profitable. So what did they do? They said like once a week. Yeah. Yep. And then so it piles up. The trash once a week. So what happens? You have food rotting for a week. And then, you know, you obviously have cats and rats. And so uh, this, this profit motive from private enterprise has consequences and you know like when banks start withdrawing credit lines and these companies have to start shutting down operations and and letting people go uh that's when all of these problems start compounding and then you know i don't know where the what the outcome is because it's going to be a, a like a complex interaction of 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 unintended consequences, failures, um, and systemic errors that you know. Um, I think maybe the scientific word for it is a train wreck. <laughs> Actually, the technical word for that is mostly bad. <laughs> to say, you know, you know the joke. You know the joke. Uh, while uh, while the uh, Boris Yeltsin was pre president of Russia. And then he gets his uh, advisor to come and tell him what the situation is, and he says like. Uh, so tell me what the situation is. And the guy says, like, Mr. President, in one word, good. And he goes like, and in two words, not good. 
<laughs> that's true for his presidency too because he had yeah. he had some interesting times was he arrested yeah. then released then arrested again i think he got arrested at least four times that that, that guy would yeah didn't he no, get arrested no, no. like three or four he, times or was it in drop off i can't no, remember no, which one it was no no yeltsin was never arrested it was um no it was oligarchs it, it was a uh, oligarchs and yeah yeltsin was uh let go and he enjoyed his retirement until he died so was, you think uh, you think that yeah. China is going to lure these guys in and then um... they, have, they have already done that. They have already lured them in. Uh, it just that they didn't work out that the China, that the Chinese were taking them in to destroy them rather than to empower them. And I think that happened at some point after Xi Jinping became president. Uh, only then they because you, you, you look at what people like uh People like uh, Henry Kissinger <laughs> and and uh, George Soros are saying, then you realize that that it's dawn on them that that China was not going to be the next host. And yeah. so you know the, the the consolation price, since they don't have a host and they're and they're killing the host they, they have now, their consolation price is to is to create a, a geopolitical block and erect an iron curtain. And I think that one of the best ways to frame this is exactly what George Soros said in uh, in May 22 at the at the World Economic Sa uh, Forum in Davos during his annual address and he said the conflict we're looking at at the world today is the conflict between two systems of governance and that is exactly correct and the two systems of governance is the, the undead British Empire versus the rest of humanity. And the undead British Empire is, you know, uh, uh, collective West, NATO, uh, Bank of International Settlements, the gl global systemically important banks, uh, IMF, World Bank, and all the militaries and all the, you know, enforcement uh, apparatus that is, that is, uh, that is making that system work. And in the United States, obviously it's the neocons in the Biden administration, but let's face it, they were in there during the Trump administration and they were in there during the Bush and Obama administrations. They're the, they're the permanent. That's uh, what I call the deep state. That's, that's the, the that's bureaucrats. The state, exactly. They've been there forever. The, exactly. the, the consulting houses, the think tanks, you know, like these eggheads at Stratfor and some of the others, Rand and all the others that sit there and talk about things like China's China's entire civilization is going to collapse because they have more women than men, blah, blah, blah. But that's the kind of eggheads that that get us into situations like this. I think that and something you touched on that I, I want to um, keep drilling down on because I think you're spot on, right? But first of all, I'm... I'm it's great that you're a student of history because a lot of people have forgotten how historically the monarchies over time have recycled the same aristocracy tenets over and over and over again, right? And I think yeah. and the British Empire, especially the Windsor family, they need to go away. They need to be removed in total. No, Whether they're removed and eliminated, removed and not, not given any power or any credence, they, they, they all need to go. Because the 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 part we're not talking about that's just as salient as everything you have talked about is the fact that now you have a royal prince that's implicated in not only child trafficking but crimes against children, and Chuck was also friends with one of the most um, prolific pro prolific pedophiles in England, and that's going to come out as well. And I think the people that are going to release that is either going to be Putin or it's going to be Xi that shows people what they've really been doing, and that'll be the end of the monarchies, because they, they all need to go in total. Are you, are you referring to uh, Jimmy Savile? Yeah. Okay, well, that's that, to a large extent, already came out, and everybody knows it. And do you know the person who, um, do you know the person who helped um, make all that go away, who it is? No. Is the current labor leader, Sir <laughs> Keir Starmer? You know he earned that knighthood somehow. That's part of how he earned this. Well, you know, first of all, he uh, he helped the Jimmy Savile investigation die, 
and he also helped destroy uh, the political career of uh, uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Well, he didn't really destroy it, but he pretty much disenfranchised him from the from the Labour Party. You know, I knew I knew most of that, but I wanted I wanted you to actually go through it. So thanks for for letting me pimp on that one. <laughs> I I think the interesting thing is is that my my audience hears that all the time, right? Because I I kick doors on red rooms. I don't know if you know what a red room is, but red rooms are where they strap a kid in a chair, and these are kids under ten. And they have these viewing galleries of people that are actually there in the audience. And they're paying money to tell the guy that's in the room with the kid what to do to the kid. And that's rape, torture, dismemberment, you name it. It's the sickest thing I've ever seen in my life, right? Luckily, I never kicked doors while they were doing something to a kid. It was always after the fact because they always got advance warning we were coming. And I wasn't even there for that purpose. I was there for, for another purpose. And... The interesting side of it is, is that they're all over the world and very rich people. Let me say it again. Very rich people participate in this ritualistic behavior. And that's going to come out at some point. And I, I can't help but think that all of these royals that have more money and nothing to do are involved in this in some way, shape or form, if not facilitating it. And in the case of Andrew, I absolutely think that he was a part of that whole culture because of Epstein and his affiliation with Epstein. And I think that's the other piece of this that we're not, we're not discussing um, because I think there's the other aspect of China is think about all the, the adoptions from China that have happened over the last 50 years by Europeans, by Americans and by other countries. And don't tell me, you can't tell me that G doesn't have an eye on that as well. Because he seems to have a pulse on all of these underground subversive activities across the planet. Like you said, when the, one of the first things you said, they have the receipts. And I, I can't help but think that they got the receipts on all these guys, especially the oligarchs. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I wanted to add just something regarding the British royalty. And I think it's, it's probably true for all royalty. And that is that they are also puppets on the string. You know, um, I'm not convinced that Queen Elizabeth died a peaceful death. I, I think there's a there's a good uh, likelihood that she was put to sleep. Uh, we know now for certain that George V in 1936 was, was put to sleep. He didn't die a natural death, and that's on record. That's no longer speculation. And the reason uh, the reason why they do this. Uh, you know, they vary and we can guess, you know, George V was put down because the, you know, the the policy uh, in the run-up to World War II changed in some way. Uh, Queen Elizabeth II, you know, there was, uh, it, she died shortly before the war in Ukraine was going to, was going to happen. Probably because so, she didn't want it to happen. She knew it was be maybe. it would be a disaster. Maybe, maybe, maybe. But you know, the very fact that there's a power behind the throne that can say, "Okay, this person's out, and we're going to put in somebody else the next heir." George V knew when he was being put down. He knew they were killing him. He was furious. But there was nothing he could do. So, you know, they injected him with, uh, you know, whatever it was, cocaine and some other stuff. He knew he was being put down, but there was nothing he could do. So, you know, uh, they are, I'm not making any excuses for them. They are uh, craven, depraved degenerates. There's no doubt about that. But people who have them on the strings are the the source, the epicenter of that all that evil that then poisons everything else. And, and that so to me people, that to me is the yeah. bankers. That's the the deep yeah. institutional money in Europe that's been around forever. Yes. You know, and I'm not going to sit here and say the Rockefellers and the, you know, the Rothschilds, which is a common conspiracy. There's other institutional money that's been around for hundreds of years in Europe, as yeah. well as here in the US. And they're names that people have never heard. Right. It's yeah. yeah, they stay in the shadows, but they manipulate 
all of the foreign policy, all the domestic policy. And I, I think there's probably a lot of merit to what you're saying. Um, but by the same token, the monarchies need to go away. They, they, yeah, they, yeah. they've, the, the, they've the served their purpose. I agree. The monarchies definitely have to go away, but definitely uh, the, uh, the, uh, the banking cabal has to be extinguished. And I am almost certain, you know, the, the, logic of, the logic of today's conflict actually imposes it on the Russians and the Chinese to go all the way in this direction. They have to root these people out and take them out and make their system illegal for eternity because, you know, these banking families, and you're right, some of them go back hundreds of years. There's a thing mm -hmm. called uh, Venetian black nobility, which has continuity going back to the, you know, to the to the 14th century. Yeah, back to the Knights of Templars, are, as far as I know. They go, they may go back farther, all the way back to preceded, Christ. Yeah, Templars preceded them, and Templars are another mystery. They don't, I, I don't quite understand, but they were definitely uh, in that category. You know, they were, uh, they were, they were. They ended up operating a banking system across the Mediterranean. And uh, so these people definitely have to be uh, disenfranchised and taken. Uh, their, their toys and systems have to be taken away from them, 100%. And, you know, the more I pay attention to things that it's coming out of the Russian and Chinese leadership, the more convinced I am that they actually understand with great clarity what they're going up against. Well, I think the thing that's that's well, here's the interesting thing about Ukraine to me. I don't look at Ukraine as a standard kinetic operation. I look at Ukraine as Putin sent an entire brigade to Chernobyl on day one. And he lost a lot of he had a lot of casualties taking Chernobyl. You got to ask the question, what was on the ground there that was so important? that he had to send that many troops to go secure it. And then he started going after the biolabs, sending special forces all over the country to take these biolabs. And it put our entire uh, defense, defense threat reduction and the CDC into a panic because they were worried that the scientists were going to be captured by the Russians and they didn't want that information to get out. Now, I know that Russia's captured several key people at the early stages of this, which is where they came up with all the documentation on all the, the corruption, the funding, et cetera, et cetera. But the way I look at it based on Putin's actions is that this is an existential threat to Russia and to the Slavic people. And this is something that he is, he takes very seriously because he's, he's a mother Russia guy and he's not, he's not one of these people that thinks I want the Soviet Union back. No, this is for mother Russia. That means something completely different than yes. the Soviet Union. And people don't understand the difference. And they, they don't understand the fact that the places he's occupying right now in the Donbass, those are all ethnic Russian areas. And he is he has been pushed into a corner to the point where he can't back away. He can't negotiate and then give up territory. He's he's only got one way to go. And once he takes once he takes um Bakhmut. It's going to be a land grab all the way to Kiev because there's nothing to stop them. There's there's no yeah. troops between Kiev and Bakhmut. And if we go in, which we're dumb enough to do because we have complete morons in the federal government right now that think we can win, we're going to see a lot of Americans killed for no reason. Because at the end of the day, the Russians are not our enemy. They just want regional no. stability, regional trade partners, and they want a stable economy. They don't want to fight World War II over again. That's not something that's in their in any of their interests to do. At least that's my my uh, take on it. I, I would go a step further, Stephen, uh, and I would say that Russia is actually the the a natural ally of the United States. And you know, another thing that's been methodically scrubbed from out of the uh, curriculum is that during a good chunk of the 18th century and the whole of the 19th century, the United States and Russia were very, very close allies and friends. Yeah. And it only happened 
after the British Empire started infiltrating the United States, that all of that got scrubbed from out of the curriculum. So most people don't even know that. And you know, like if if I ask people, like, do you know what was the role of Russia in the in the United States Civil War? Hardly anybody ever heard that such a thing even happened. I mean, virtually nobody. It's it's not controversial. It's on record, and people who are historians, you know, who who study the history of the United States are fully well aware of this. But if you just take like a U.S. history course or watch movies about the Civil totally War, scrubbed, totally you scrubbed, never heard about anything to do with Russia, and you think that the whole thing was about the emancipation of slaves. Yeah, that was, was like not. a far second. That was yeah. a far second. It was well, a, it was a, it was a geopolitical. Uh, it was a geopolitical ploy where the British Empire wanted to break up the United States into two smaller, weaker client states because they were afraid that the United States was going to become too powerful and that it's going to be able to challenge their, uh, you know, hegemony over the over the trade routes uh, in the Atlantic and in the Pacific. That was why it's why the Civil War happened. Yeah, and well, what's interesting about that is that even in the military when we do battle studies, and so I've walked all over um, Antietam, I've walked over uh, Gettysburg. Gettysburg's impressive. We're talking five square miles, 28,000 casualties in three days, brutality on a level we've never seen since on our soil. And what's amazing to me is no mention of Russian involvement, no no mention of Russian support. It's buried in some of the, the West Point history books. As a footnote, there's no yeah. mainstream conversation about it, and I stumbled upon it uh, as a, after long after I did the battlefield studies. I was I was reading a book called the Gettysburg Reports, where I was actually reading what um, Joshua Chamberlain, he's a Medal of Honor winner. He 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 was writing about the Battle of Little Round Top, and um, and then there was some references below that, and I'm like, what's this Russian stuff? And I started digging into it, and Lo and behold, there it is. And it's again the what the the interesting part of that though is that the the British Empire they they reached their peak in World War One, and then after that, steady decline. Just like we're in the same place right now. The difference though between us and the British Empire is once we decouple from the city of London and the banking cartel. We can go back and gives us several options because we have one thing the British do not have landmass and natural resources in abundance. And yep. we what what we've lost over the years is the institutional knowledge on how to exploit those resources and build a steel, you know, steel industry, build all semiconductor. We could do all that, but it's going to yeah. be a steep learning curve to get back there, right? So yeah, I think well uh, look if if, if I would be optimistic about that because I think that the United States still remains one of the most vibrant powers in the world. I mean, you know, now it's been drugged up and beat up by by these globalists. But, you know, um, it may be hard to imagine when you look at what's going on, you know, what's going on in the streets of Baltimore and what's going on in the streets of Philadelphia. You might think like Christ. But if you look at um, where Russia was, for example, 23 years ago and where it is today. And not only was Russia an absolute mess, the most corrupt country in the world, an economic basket case. It was it was like a big rust bucket. Nothing worked. Yep. Their military was was laid to waste. It was everything was a mess. And even before that crisis, they had 70 years of communism, right? And once they had the good men at helm, they recovered extremely rapidly. And I think that the same is going to happen for the United States. And if I may be a little bit optimistic, because, you know, like I've, I've been giving this China problem a lot of thought, you know, and what I see as Chinese um, strategy is they're, they're raising nations around the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they are. So, uh, they're financing development, but it's not a debt trap. You know, like there's a there's a there's a a John Hopkins study that looked at three thousand different loans extended to African countries over a twenty year period by the Chinese. 
they never once called in a loan, not even once. And a lot of the development they do, like a guy from Yemen told me, a guy, I met a man from Yemen and he told me, the Chinese came in, they built us a big port. They didn't charge us anything. They said, we'll be, build you the infrastructure. It's gonna help your economy. In 20 years time, when your economy is stronger, you're gonna start paying us back. Until then, it's all free. So here's why I'm making that point. The Chinese raised 850 million of their own citizen out of poverty. So it seems to me that they are setting themselves to be you know, the manufacturing hub of the world and to have a massive market of prosperous people who can afford to buy their wares. Yeah? I, I think, yeah, I, well, I think that's a. I think that's the goal, but I think their limitation is their net importer of just about everything, right? So yeah, but they're you know they're value added, you know, like they they import stuff, but they they add value in manufacturing and then they export then stuff. She, yeah, that, that's right. You know, like the, the point I'm I'm saying, which is why I'm particularly optimistic about the longer term future of the United States, is that once. Once the United States has freed itself from this from this World Economic Forum and City of London clutches, you know, like you have a very vibrant economy, a very healthy democratic foundations, you know, state rights and local sheriffs and people with weapons at home and all this, and a very healthy entrepreneurial spirit. There's going to be this massive market everywhere around the world of people with money to spend. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the prosperity that's going to be possible from that point on without having to rely on a reserve currency, without having to tell everybody you'll do as we say or else, just simply by by trading and by exchanging. I think that, um, again, I'm, I know I'm being optimistic in this, but I believe that based on what I see, it seems to me that this future is is uh, quite a likelihood. I, I, well, I, I would agree with you because I, th- I normally I would I would look at the situation as you know here's all the worst possible things right because in the military you look at most likely enemy course of action most dangerous right they're already going down the most dangerous course of action and what I see coming out of this is you're going to have a generation or two generations that are going to be as hard as nails. They're not going to put up with any other shit that they've been putting up with for the last, you know, 50, 60 years. And more importantly, that generation is going to be across the planet. People are going to find out what was in the in the vaccines. People are going to find out what the long-term health effects are. And then they're going to make sure it never happens again. And you're going to see a massive purge of all these corrupt people that have sold out across the planet. And it's going to happen a variety of ways. But what's going to come out of that is this country will be will be stronger, better, leaner, and faster. And we won't be addicted to all the the trinkets and crap that we've been sold for the last 50 years. We're going to have less choices. We're going to have more focused, a more focused economy, a more focused culture. And that culture is going to be focused on, at least that's the way I see it. We're going to be more focused on how do we enhance humanity versus how do we, you know, take care of ourselves, stuff. You know, what stuff do I need? I think that mentality is going to be weeded out of the entire planet. I think one of the second and third order effects that we're seeing from the situation in Ukraine is the realization that people are fatigued with war. They just, they don't want to deal with it anymore. There's better solutions. We, we don't need to keep rebuilding countries every five or six years after somebody has gone in and bombed them or blown them up. We need to resolve this, the economic issues in Africa and bring that whole population up. And we need to stabilize the system so that there's not so much fraud, waste, abuse, et cetera. And, and, I, and I think we're going to through fits and starts with currency until we figure that out, because I don't think crypto is going to yeah. stick around forever. I don't think there's going to be this asset-based technocracy that people are talking about. I think we're going to go through several iterations before we find a system that works for everybody. But I really do think this is the last great conflict for the planet, because after this, we're technologically far enough advanced to where the next step is space. And we have to figure, we can't take the shit we're doing here into space 
and meet a meet an advanced race if that's the if that's the next order battle and show them that we're still a warring primitive culture right we have to get past this and i think people are starting to realize that i think leaders are starting to realize that so i, I mean that's my two cents that's kind of a star trekian but you know when you think about it from the perspective of where the, the the population is, most of the population, they don't give two shits about Ukraine. They just want it to stop, literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 100% agreed. And I think that what you said is actually uh, quite profound and beautiful. And I think that uh, I think that somewhere in the back of our minds, most of us are starting to discern this as the as a possibility, you know, like the the American of Tom, Tom Sawyer, only 21st century version, you know, people who are free to live and enterprise and, and, and bring their communities up and enjoy life because why not, you know, why, yeah. why are we here? Yeah. I, and I, 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 I just closing thought here. Cause I know you've, you've got stuff going on and I've got stuff going on. You know, I, I say on a regular basis that if, if we just spent one nanosecond, so celebrating the differences in cultures, this would be a different planet. Just one yes. nanosecond, because we spend so much time and we're indoctrinated as kids to think of everyone else as less than, but we're not. You know, one of the things that I that I loved about, especially the Kurdish people, is they do a family event. It's two to three days. They they don't care about work. They don't care about anything else. It's about this is time with our family. They put all their technology away, and they sit and celebrate. Whether it's a, a marriage, whether it's an anniversary. They celebrate it, right? And if we did that on every culture, wow, what a different planet it would be if we did that. Just celebrated yeah, I, our families. I, I, th I think that I, I think that kind of life is coming our way. And I think that we have no choice but to fight for it because wouldn't you prefer for your children to live like that than to be, you know, slaving away in a cubicle 10 hours a day and then, you know, for what? Yeah. I wanna I wanna as a as a last thought, Steve, I don't know if if you you know picked this up because it came to me today. Um Judge Andrew Napolitano's interview with Ray McGovern. And I didn't it's see about it. the Pentagon. Yeah, very important because it's it's the Pentagon leak. And so, you know, uh, uh Larry Johnson and Ray McGovern kind of worked out, and probably other other uh, many other analysts have worked out that there's no way that, that Jack Dexera could have been the leaker. No way. I could have told you that day one. Yeah. You knew that. Okay. There yeah, because I mean, think about it. This so, kid's a National Guard guy, and he's got, first of all, I was in, the, I, I had a top secret clearance, above top secret, for almost 25 years, 30 years. And I never had access to any CIA documentation. I never had access, unless I was at the Pentagon, to any of the classified briefings for the Joint Chiefs. There's no way this kid would have seen any of that. In, okay. in, a, in a guard base that's just that's stupid so, so that should set so the prevalence right there so the, the the interesting thing that ray mcgovern uh suggested is that this leak came probably from uh general mark milley or somebody very very close to him and uh, the reason is because he said like there's 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 got to be people high up in the joint chiefs of staff who don't want this whole thing to end up in a nuclear exchange and they want to sabotage the sophomores who are advising Joe Biden. So, you know, I, I, I wanted to throw that in because I find it very um, encouraging. And I think that it relates to the, to what we've been discussing at the beginning of this conversation that, you know, like the, the oligarchy can't automatically count on the loyalty of the people with guns, because ultimately even even somebody like Mark Milley is reasonable and has maybe some streak of patriotism in him that, you know, in a given moment, in a given moment when, you know, like the consequence of some action is, could be unthinkable that they pull back and then do what Smedley Butler had done uh, in yeah. 1930. You know, what's, I, you just jogged my memory to some. You, yeah, I watched one of your interviews. You were in a hotel and somebody, you were doing a face to face and you said something I thought was, was something I'd been saying forever. And I was glad to hear somebody else finally say it. And that is the oligarchs 
they're relying on people to burn the bridge they're standing on in the name of this new world order. And you said that that there's going to be a point where those people are not going to burn the bridge they're standing on because it doesn't make sense for them or to anyone else around them to take the fall for something they don't believe in in the first place. I, I, I'm paraphrasing, exactly. but that's essentially what you said. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's, exactly. That's exactly. And, that's, how and I think that that's exactly where we the, where we got at this point. I think I, that's exactly what happened with the, yeah. with the Pentagon leaks. Well, so as a final thought, you know, you're in Europe, so you're completely removed from from the U.S., any thoughts for the American public based on what you're seeing that any any final thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I would say uh, they've been lying to us about everything for decades. So I would say, please be very, very discerning. And the greatest gift that you could ever give them is to um, to direct your grievances towards some external enemy that they encourage you to hate. It always starts with demonization, you know, Saddam, Milosevic, uh, Gaddafi, Vladimir Putin, uh, Assad. It always goes with demonization when they target something. They're always lying to you. Uh, And I would say, uh, believe in the future of your country, because also the greatest gift you could give them is to, uh, to allow for the country to be destroyed and partitioned, because that's you know, if they don't manage to uh, get the United States into this block that they're trying to carve out, then they're better off destroying the United States. Yeah. Because sooner or later, you know, this purge is going to happen and the United States is going to be open towards Russia. And the, I, I think there's going to be the third alliance between the United States and Russia. There'll be the third one. And in that case, you know, the, the oligarchs are, are are cooked and done. So they would prefer to have United States uh, completely destroyed. So I would say to the American people uh, to never allow that to happen, to preserve the Union, as Abraham Lincoln did, uh, to keep optimistic, to pray, and uh, to not fall into jingoistic um, warmongering and fearmongering that is being... Uh, broadcast 24-7. I would agree with that, my friend. Well, I, I had to tell you, what a pleasure. I, I, I appreciate you making the time. Sorry about the scheduling conflicts and all the other stuff that's been going on. It's been I'm sure you're just as busy as I am, but uh, definitely have to do it again. And I, we can work out timing over the next few weeks, but I'd like to do, you know, you, me, and Tom and get on a call because just to watch two guys talk is kind of a Zen moment for me. So just saying. <laughs> But uh, anyway, thanks, Parler. Appreciate the time. Steven, uh, it was it was a great pleasure. Thank you for having me, and I'll I'll uh, I'll look forward to connect again in the future with with pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks, brother. And you take care. All the best to your uh, to all your viewers and listeners. Absolutely.